Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Happy Halloween times, everybody. Um, let's see. Last week, we talked about the Neon Demon. So uh, if you haven't seen that, check it out. It is uh, really worth seeing. And then uh, go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. Uh, I also, before we get into it, I want to let everybody know that this episode is brought to you by Faith Life TV, which is a new streaming service uh, that features a number of uh, documentaries, um, interviews, uh, some narrative films as well, and just a bunch of resources for uh, people in ministry and just uh, Christians in general. So uh, you can get a free month of that if you go to morethanonelesson.com and you click on the uh, the Faith Life TV ad on the side of the screen there. Uh, if you click on that, you get your first month for free, and then after that, it's four ninety nine a month. So please do check it out. They've got some good stuff over there. Okay, now. This week, well, first I'm going to reintroduce from a couple weeks ago my co-host, Reed Lackey. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing all right, Tyler. All right. Now, before we get to our uh, discussion of the film Don't Breathe, uh, I did want to say, so you recently went to Halloween Horror Nights. Yes. And you recorded it. Right? Yes. Uh, yes. I recorded part of the experience, but most especially... Um, probably by the time the listeners hear this episode, at least one, if not both of the episodes will be there. Uh, my co-host Nathan and I actually recorded episodes proper while at oh. Horror Nights. So um, so our conversation about um, Jurassic Park. Okay. And, uh, well, if listeners hear this before the big reveal, then uh, one, of our, one of your top ten is Scream. Because our conversation about Jurassic Park and our conversation about Scream took place at Horror Nights. Nice. So, yeah, it was very fun. Uh, and yeah, as of right now, you're still going through the top 10, uh, sorry, the, the top, what is it? 50 top 50, yeah. top 50 horror movies of the nineties. Yes. So we're counting down 10 films each week. Uh, we did go ahead and rank the top hundred by listener votes, Nice. but we're only counting down on episode, the top 50 Right. and all of the countdowns were done at horror nights, which okay. was a lot of fun. Um, uh, because you'll hear, uh, my co-host, uh, say a movie and then you'll hear his breathing change as he, as he's about to walk into the maze cause he's not accustomed to the experience but uh yeah we counted down the top 50 on the episodes and then when the series is completed we'll throw up the top the full top 100 on right. letterboxd and share it to the page and okay great and everything uh and then we'll also put a, a list of that uh at more than one lesson.com but, uh, but yeah you can you can find out all about that those of you who who voted you can find out uh 
that some of your favorite horror movies from the 90s didn't even make the list. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but moving on, we uh, we are going to talk about the film Don't Breathe, directed by, already we're in, we're in bad shape. Here. How do you say that first name? I said it, Fede Alvarez. Fede Alvarez. That sounds good to me. Alvarez, I know how to pronounce. So let's just call him by his last name. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he directed uh, the Evil Dead remake. Yes. And it looks like, as far as upcoming projects, he will be directing a remake of labyrinth at least i assume it's a remake of labyrinth i have to assume with a name like that they are banking on knowledge of the old one sure Uh, otherwise people just get angry right Um, right but that would be my assumption but yeah so he's uh he's doing very well Mm -hmm. in in hollywood uh before evil dead he mostly made you know short horror films right right uh that's one of the things that i do like about horror um, especially of the last probably 20 years, 20 plus years, um, is that because the budgets tend to be pretty low, mm-hmm. you find a lot more studios willing to take uh, risks sure. on unproven filmmakers right. or filmmakers that, you know, they make a 10 minute film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that uh, lights out was basically that the, yeah. the film itself was based on a, on a, on a short. And so it's like, Oh, well the director, you know, was able to, uh, uh, capture a certain tone or evoke a certain feeling or, or create a certain visual style in these 10 minutes. So, you know what, let's give them a full 90, which it does seem to be an odd jump to make. But, uh, but in the case of somebody like, uh, Fede Alvarez, I think, uh, it has worked, um, because by all accounts, the evil dead remake is actually pretty good. I like it. I Um, like it a lot. And, and then I am actually a big fan of don't breathe. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff about it that I really love. He makes, he makes certain choices that, um, and often they're just little, they're little touches here and there that really help sell the reality and make everything a little bit, uh, more insidious. So, uh, for those that don't know, don't breathe is about, um, these three uh, 20-somethings who need some money, and so they find out that uh, there's this blind man who might be sitting on several hundred thousand dollars, and so they break into his house only to find that he is hardly helpless and that he starts uh, stalking them. They get stuck in the house, uh, and uh, he's incredibly dangerous, and they are fearing for their lives. So uh, before we get into... And then it also turns out that not only is he... Uh, you know, an experienced, uh, you know, like a war vet, I believe, right? Yeah, from the Gulf War. Right. Not only is it that, but also he is up to some pretty rough stuff of his own, which we will get to later. But uh, I did want to ask you first, uh, do you uh, consider this a horror movie? I do. Um, I don't make the distinction that many do between thriller and horror. Okay. So I can understand if someone you or anyone else wanted to navigate through the particulars of thriller versus horror, I can have that conversation and, and uh, even think that that conversation is merited and worthy. But in my own mind, if I'm looking at a, a film that is in any way contain a horrific element, even if it would technically be considered a thriller, I'm, I'm going to classify it as horror. Yeah, that's something that I only recently started talking about, and the listeners of Battleship Pretension heard me talk about it uh, on this uh, this past uh, Sunday, that um, horror, I mean, obviously it's always been associated with scary. Sure. Um, 
when in fact, uh, and understandably so, but at the same time, I feel like horror doesn't have to be purely scary. Really anything that deals in the horrific, as you say, um, you know, Frankenstein may not actually be scary. I know that audiences at the time found it a little bit scary, not like the Wolfman or something like that, but Mm -hmm. they found it a little bit scary. Um, and so it's like, well, this doesn't really feel like a horror movie. It's like, well, no, but we do have to realize that we're looking at an animated corpse right, that is right. walking around. Sure. And that is a horrific concept. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. And so that is what makes it horror. Um, I, don't get me wrong. Don't breathe. Uh, I don't mean to imply that it is not scary. It is very, very tense. It's nerve wracking. It yeah. is nerve wracking. It's <laughs> when the movie is always like. I could go for a nap. This is, I'm very tired now. And a stiff drink. Uh, yeah. And, um, so yeah, I think, I definitely think it is, people could absolutely say it's a thriller, but honestly, I feel like when you are dealing with a character like, uh, he's simply known as the blind man, his mm-hmm. lack of name kind of lends itself to a certain type of monster. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and a guy who just seems at times almost supernaturally able right to navigate his house and be everywhere at once and that sort of thing mm-hmm. um he is still very human don't get me wrong mm-hmm. um but i think it's i think it's enough to to qualify as as a horror movie and it's certainly more than enough to qualify uh, to talk about during halloween times because yeah, there's absolutely there's enough rough stuff going on there and it is a tense enough movie mm-hmm. that i absolutely think if we're going to incorporate if we're going to do an episode about Coraline, then i'm perfectly fine with uh, <laughs> right. doing an episode about don't listeners, breathe I, I forget the placement but last year on the fear of god listeners did rank it as one of their favorite horror films okay of of that year it yeah. was i believe high up in the list, maybe second or third place. It yeah. was, it was very high. Um, so yeah, I don't know of anybody that doesn't like it. I think it was mm-hmm. well reviewed. Yeah. Um, it did pretty well at the box office. I it think did. it was number one that week. Sure. Um, it came out, I think at the tail end of summer, like in, mm-hmm. in August when like a high concept, low budget horror movie can do really well. Sure. Um, it's kind of a nice, it's a, it's sort of a nice, it's weird to describe it this way, but it's kind of a nice palate cleanser, mm-hmm. uh, given like the normal summer fare. Sure. Um, and then, uh, it's hard to describe this movie as cleansing in any way, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so I, it is a film that I really, I find myself thinking about, uh, I have not purchased it. And in retrospect, I think I probably should. It's hmm. one that I feel like I would return to. And I think my wife would absolutely adore. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, um, and it sounds like you enjoyed the film. You I did. It was pretty I good. did. What do you? What's so great about this movie? Reed? <laughs> well, okay. So a small caveat. Um, by the time I saw it, which I did not get it in the theater, mm-hmm. by the time I saw it, I feel like it had been a bit overhyped for me. Oh, okay. But that having been said, um, it's one of those uh, categories of films about which I would say I really can't complain about anything. So I think the buzz around it uh, set me up for something um, utterly spectacular, mm-hmm. wh- whereas what I got was simply uh, extremely well-crafted. So, yeah. so it was just one of those things where, yes, this is, um, I mean, this hits all the beats that you need to hit. And I was actually excited to talk about it with you because I, I, I know uh, what a fan of it you are. Mm-hmm. And, and me going into it saying like, well, I really like Don't Breathe. It doesn't quite cross into the, the love category for me, but there's enough there that, I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not hating on the film in any capacity. Yeah. I'm all, I'm actually anxious to hear from more people about like, okay, what, what did you love about it? Help yeah. me, help me anchor some of what I know is out there about it and what I merely got, um, a general sense of, yeah. um, what I do think is really effective about it is the, the premise of, uh, a home invasion on its head. Yes. The idea that they're invading this guy, but th that this was the wrong. I know another film that is, was not as well received and I don't like it nearly as much as don't breathe was the collector where there is an, there is a, uh, a man who breaks into a home. He's a robber, but in this particular home that he breaks into, there is a home invader there terrorizing the family. Oh, so okay. then suddenly he gets caught he was there to rob that family, but then while he's there, he witnesses that this other guy is doing far more sadistic stuff to them. So he gets caught up in that. It's kind of a neat premise. But that film, uh, I, I didn't care for it nearly as much as Don't Breathe. And I think one of the things that's very effective about Don't Breathe is the the, the character of the blind man is a in in Stephen Lang's performance in the way that the narrative beats out and utilizes that character. Yeah. He's he's really scary. He's he's a he's a formidable, almost to the point to where his being blind, you just sort of roll with all the things he can do. Yes. You, you alluded earlier to the almost supernatural quality of some of the things he can do, but but you just suspend your disbelief. You just sort of roll with it, and he's he's really frightening. It, it's it's some of the shots that uh, even on this rewatch uh, really gave me the creeps uh like when he's just sitting up in bed suddenly when the camera turns back or yeah. or you're with the main characters for a little while and then it turns the corner and he's just there um yeah. but you know and what's what's kind of brilliant about it is you know in that moment they haven't been caught quite yet yeah but it's it's imminent and that feeling of dread and that feeling of like i can see it and the There's, threat there's inevitability. It's this yes. idea. It's like, you can't keep this going. This, right. You right. are in this guy's house. And that's the, that is the beautiful thing about the premise about the fact that he is blind is that him not being able to see you is not going to save you because, right. you know, if you step on a creaking floorboard or anything like that, like sure. he's got you, he could be, uh. he could be down the hall mm -hmm. and he knows you're there. Yeah. It's a, it's a really neat idea to, to hang, uh, a horror film on and i think they utilize it yeah um you when know, he turns the lights out on them yeah. good lord yeah, yeah that whole sequence is is fantastic there's some really well crafted suspense sequences yeah. um and i think that that really connects i think the I, i'll t i'll tell you one thing that i think undermines it for me out the gate and i would just we can just brush past this comment i become almost annoyed anymore at films that lead in the opening moments with something that's going to be called back to in about an hour. Right. I don't know why it frustrates me so much, but I know that it's a relatively recent filmmaking technique. Hmm. Um, and I much prefer just, just start, just, just tell me your story. Yeah. But this opens with him, you know, dragging her down, which we then right. later see what connects to that. Um, me personally, Maybe other film, maybe other film audiences need it. I don't need that. I don't. You're you're correct. Um, uh, my friend and I were recently talking uh, about a trend. It is a fairly recent trend, probably last ten years, I'd say, where for whatever reason, like beginning, middle, and end, ju and just telling a story that way 
is seen as simple or basic or right, something like right. that. Like, even if it's, hey, we saw an, uh, a disturbing image from near the end. Mm. Okay, now let's let's go back. And it's just like, if you, I'm reminded, uh, it's one of my favorite uh, quotes, uh, a friend of uh, Battleship Pretension, Wayne Fetterman, he was talking about um, going to a concert and one of his least favorite things is when the band says like, it's like, get on your feet, make some noise. Oh, and he, just, right, and he right. wants to say like, you know, if you do what you're supposed to do, well, this will happen naturally. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And it's this feeling that like, like, oh my gosh, we've, you know, uh, look at this disturbing image. Now let's, do we have you hooked? Now let's go back. It's like, if you do this right, there are plenty of movies mm-hmm. that, that t- tell their story in a completely linear way. And if you do this right, for example, Jaws, um, yeah. the shining, the shining, um, I would say even, um, uh, uh, it follows, I think does yes. a great job Yes, where it unfolds in just a, a standard format mm-hmm. and, but it, it hooks us. And yeah. I feel like there probably would be enough, uh, of a hook with don't breathe. I, I, you know, just seeing him, uh, like you could almost show him just in his house or something like sure. that. And you see him like walk out of frame and the camera lingers on something, maybe a weapon or something just sitting yeah. there. And then we, and then we cut to our characters and it toys with this idea. It's like, Oh, they don't like, of course we've seen the trailer. So we know that they're going to get in trouble, but right, it's like, right. they don't know what they are getting themselves into. Right. And now every word they say about breaking into that house is just one more word of like, they're going to go and be with that guy with right. that weapon. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not, a am not opposed to a hook, but yeah, this mm-hmm. kind of this half hearted nonlinear thing yeah. uh, is it feels lazy because it doesn't devote to nonlinear as the entire narrative fashion. Not at all. And and so like gr- a great example, you mentioned It Follows. Another great example, we we had a conversation, it has not aired on the Fear of God feed uh, by the time this will post, but our conversation about Scream, we point out that that first 15 minutes of Scream is a great way to introduce the threat and introduce the premise, and yeah. then it's immediately following that that you get to your core story. Yeah. It Follows does a very similar thing by showing us that most recent victim, yeah. but not explaining what's going on, just showing us that victim, and then we move on. Now I've I've zero opposition to that yeah. because then you then you've shown us like what happened that that okay we know that it's going to be some involvement of this kind of thing, right. and then you get into your core story. But I just get so frustrated when when it makes me feel like they don't trust the story that they've got, or it makes me feel like they don't trust at the very least the opening setup that they've got. No. And uh, and and I don't know if it's if it's the studios that are pushing for that level of sort of tease at the front or what it is. But that was one big all of that uh, distraction to basically say. That may be one thing that sort of dings down, don't breathe for me. Because no. because I will not deny for a second that what follows, the film that follows that, yeah. is exceptionally well-crafted. But I I was indeed quite frustrated when you know this highly acclaimed thriller and the first thing that I see is clearly something yeah. that is going to happen later. Because I know that actress is a main character, so yeah. I know she doesn't start the film with that way. And, right. and so I think it may be just started on the wrong foot with me. You know, it's, I wonder if it is a studio thing because, uh, and a a lack of trust, maybe not in the film, but in the audience. Hmm. Um, because I think studios think, and they might be right that audiences just in general are less patient. Um, you know, I find myself wondering like, wouldn't it be interesting, uh, 
to edit a movie like, say, Alien mm. um, this way, where the first shot is like Ripley running down the halls as the lights are going off, uh, right, and she's right. absolutely terrified, and then smash cut to black, and then we then we're introduced to the Nostromo, mm. you mm. know, because. You know, when you think about it, don't breathe. Remove that opening scene. Right. And right. it unfolds in a fairly conventional way. In a way, it's like, we're not in the house for a while. We're not in danger for a while. Nobody's getting killed for a while. Like, uh, people might get bored. Right, um, right. And so, yeah, it does seem like a studio thing. Mm -hmm. um, certainly something that they would not be opposed to. Right. Um, I think my big problem with the film would probably be uh, and this is where I feel like it could fall more into thriller than horror. Cause I think, I feel like you, you find this more in thrillers where, I mean, once we're into the action, there are like probably three or four like false climaxes, false, like, okay, we're, not merely, Hey, we're fine, but also, uh, okay, this is the, this is the pinnacle. And while I'm all in favor of raising the stakes after a while, it starts to feel like, okay, I know that this is a small story, but it's. I'm fine with this being 80 minutes. You don't, <laughs> oh, you don't need definitely. to make it longer, nope. exactly. but there are moments where it feels like they're just kind of trying to pad out the runtime. Sure. Um, yeah. they're still effective those moments, mm -hmm. but it, it felt like there's maybe one too many of those. Right. Did you see a recent film that hit Netflix? Uh, the devil's candy? No. Okay. So I'm not going to tell you anything about it except that it's 79 minutes long. All right. It's, it's tight. It's fun. It's, it's, I would highly recommend it. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lot of the, it does a lot of the things that we're saying don't breathe kind of falls back on yeah. uh, or, or that doesn't quite do uh, devil's candy makes what I would consider to be better choices in those okay. arenas. So I won't say anything about anything more about the film except like, yeah, tight 79 minutes. And it does those kinds of things in a way we, we are saying we wish don't breathe did. There's something kind of appropriate about a horror movie being short yeah. Um, and just like getting to it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. as much as I, you know, I just mentioned alien alien is not a movie that gets to it. No, um, no. except the, it is the world. And yeah. in that, in, right. in that sense it does. And I'm fine with that. Um, but if you look at something like say Texas chainsaw massacre, mm -hmm. which again, it tells a very economic story and a very yeah. small one and a very simple one. Yeah. And that movie is, is in the eighties. It's like 89 mm -hmm. minutes, maybe even shorter, maybe like 85 minutes. Sure. Um, it's no longer than it needs to be. Like no, once things right. get going, it's like, yeah, we're not going to slow down mm -hmm. and we are just going to have one long sustained climax. Right. Um, yeah. Oh God, that movie is relentless. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, that movie feels a lot longer when you're yeah. in the, when it's in the moment. And uh, just one brief comment about that. That's a way to, if you don't trust your audience, well do something like what Texas Chainsaw did is what you're about to see is horrific and yeah. awful. And then, and so just this opening narration, like you're about to see something terrifying yeah. and then just tell your story, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, there's, there's plenty of other way. My point being, there's plenty of other ways to do it. Even if you don't trust the audience or the filmmaker besides just inserting something that's from yeah. the tail end of the film. Yeah. And you can do it with a great cr opening credit sequence. Speaking of Texas chainsaw, sure. the opening credits are great. And the opening shot is great. It's just like those, those bodies, those on bodies that on that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that don't have anything to do with directly with the story we're going to see, right. but it's, it is a part of it as well. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so, uh, especially just because, um, just the world of don't breathe is a very dilapidated one. Like it's yeah. people that are, there's a desperation there. Mm -hmm. They don't certainly the old, uh, the, the blind man does not live in a really nice house. He lives in kind of a gross neighborhood. And so you could just, 
take the time to intrigue us with just like images of a broken down neighborhood, sure. you know, yeah. that just seems so quiet and not necessarily safe, but not unsafe either. It's just empty yeah. except yeah. for this one person. Mm-hmm. You know, you could have a shot of just his house, just standing there right. in the middle of an empty city and you see him walk out mm-hmm. and just, you know, throw the garbage out or something like that and sure. go back in. And you see that like, he is the only person on this street, right? You know, right. just anything like there are plenty of things you can do to just intrigue us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. And that is, it is, it is something that you see more. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes even not even just in horror, like you see it in action, you see it in drama. It's, it's a right, kind right. of a standard thing these days, but, um, but yeah, so as far as, um, what we like about the film, you know, here's, I'll jump to this. Cause I, I talked about the idea that the, the blind man does seem to be everywhere at once. There seems to be an right. almost supernatural quality to him. Not that the film is suggesting that, but it just in his ability to be anywhere at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that his blindness does not seem to be much of a hindrance to him. Right. Right. Here's why it works for me because there are elements of the, of the show daredevil that bother me tremendously in regards to his being blind. He is so capable Mm, that part of me feels like why even make him blind? Right. 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 Yeah. Whereas with a horror movie and, and a thriller, um, not unlike, uh, wait until dark, um, mm. you know, a person's oh, blindness can play a big role because yeah. all you got to do is turn out the lights and now everyone is blind. Yeah. And yeah. now you have the advantage. So like you can do that, but that never happens in daredevil. He's still completely on everybody else's terms, but his blindness is in no way a hindrance at all. Right. Um, and so that actually distracts me sometimes this time it didn't. And here's why, again, I mentioned these little touches. There is a moment when he's in the ba- and he's in the basement and he's walking very purposefully and you see as he's walking along he reaches his arm up and he and he just taps a beam in the mm, ceiling mm, mm-hmm. and he just taps it it's a landmark right right moments it, it only happens once and we don't really see it happen in any other kind of way um but all you got to do is throw in stuff like that that like he is still he does still need I mean, this is his house. He's, he knows the entire layout of it, but he does still need the occasional marker. And all you got to do is show that once, maybe twice. And I will buy whatever you're selling as far as his ability to be anywhere at once. Um, right. And so stuff like that, uh, like makes, I just, I, I want to like shake the director's hand for even, for even recognizing that if you need, if you just inject a little bit of realism and right. I'll, I'll, I'll buy it, I'll buy what you're selling. So stuff like that, uh, without that, I think I would still not have a problem with it cause it's still his house and he hasn't memorized. Sure. Right. Um, right. I did a play once with a, uh, a blind man and it was at a theater that he was a part of, uh, in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, and he, he would write plays and stuff. And there was a moment when he was walking towards the, f- with no cane or anything like that, he was walking from the back of the stage to the front. And then there's a three foot drop. Mm. And I was looking and no one else was looking. So he's walking f- very authoritatively again forward. And he stopped within probably three inches of the, of the edge. And I was like, and I asked him later, I said, Hey Joe, what, uh, how did you do that? And he said, well, I know how I memorized how 
right wide right. stages yes um but what's interesting is he actually he knew every inch of that entire mm-hmm. theater not merely the stage he knew every inch of that theater but there came a moment when he uh, his character because we did a play and it was based on his life and so he narrates it himself and then somebody plays his younger self he narrates it himself and they said and he agreed that in order to sell his being blind he needed to wear the sunglasses, which he did anyway. He needed to wear, wear the sunglasses and he needed to carry a cane. Sure. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. At one point, the cane didn't, during a rehearsal, the cane did not, did not fold out all the way out. Mm. And it actually caused him to stumble over some furniture oh. uh, because now he's dependent on this thing that he otherwise wouldn't have needed at all. Sure. It was very, right. it was very interesting to see. It gave yeah. me a very, a very different perspective on blindness and, mm-hmm. and familiarity. That's the other thing. Like he knew everything about where we were right. more so than, than any of us did because he needed to. Right. Um, right. Uh, and here's uh, the greatest acting compliment I've ever gotten. Uh, this is a guy who recognized me by my walk. Mm. Like I was walking up to him. However, uh, having done the first show, we there was then another show that I auditioned for. And in my audition, I did a voice and he did not recognize me. Oh, And I remember nice. thinking like, all right, look, when the blind guy doesn't recognize your voice, but can recognize your walk, you're doing okay. That, so it's great. So yeah, it was, that's uh, really great. I haven't thought about that in years. I wonder how Joe's doing, but anyway, so, uh, that's a long story. I apologize, but, uh, but yeah. And I think that Stephen Lang, that's the other thing is that, you know, uh, Charlie Cox does a fine enough job in daredevil, uh, from an emotional standpoint and certainly from a physical standpoint. Sure. But I don't believe he's blind for a number of reasons, not the least of which is, his, I don't know, based on interviews, he says like, you know, I have my eyes closed and all that. It's like really because nothing about your performance registers. Right. Right. You look like you can see. Sure. Right. Whereas Stephen Lang, he really does seem blind. There's just the way that he, the way he moves. Like I think Mm -hmm. as an actor, he realized that if I can't see, I'm moving differently. Right. I am moving it. Everything's a little bit more tentative Mm -hmm. and a little bit more careful. Like I'm reaching my hand out knowing at any point, something's going to stop it. It could happen a foot in front of me or three feet. I might have to take a step, you know, but either way, like you, you don't just jut your arm out because you never know what's out there. And I feel like if you look at the way he carries himself, the way he walks, the way he, the way he reaches out at things, it really does seem like he cannot see. Sure. And again, that grounds everything in reality, which makes things, even oddly enough a little bit more scary that this right. is just a regular guy another thing he does uh that that lang does and i don't know if it was a directorial thing i would imagine this is the kind of thing that lang would do as an actor but uh he i noticed that he leads with his ears so mm. whenever he's walking his head is always just slightly tilted yeah and and so when he's navigating it would almost be again you talk about these subtle touches it would almost be something you'd miss yeah. but but he he turns his head just slightly and i noticed that like oh well most of us are, our eyes are forward and that's our directional yeah. unit but for him besides familiarity his directional unit would be his hearing yeah. and and lang has infused that into at least in some way it might just be purely instinctual but yeah. he's infused that to some capacity into his gait and and i i did appreciate that i really yeah. like stephen lang as a performer and i feel like he 
he did really well with this role, which could have easily been utterly preposterous. Yeah. But but he grounded it. Uh, he and I'm sure the direction of Alvarez grounded that character in as you as you mentioned several times a, a, a very believable reality. And I do think that there's something kind of empowering. And I'm not somebody who is I'm I am not disabled uh, in any way. Right. Right. Um, but uh, if I were, I feel like I would look at something like Don't Breathe and feel kind of awesome about it because <laughs> this is a guy who the audience's instinct is to feel sympathy for him because he's an older guy. He right. is blind. Right. He lives alone. He just has a dog. Um, everything about him is like, oh, this poor guy. <laughs> right. And then you realize like, oh, no, he's he, he's a mm. monster. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that, uh, that hey, blind people have just as much ability to be horrible <laughs> as the rest of us. <laughs> right. um, and what I do like is that there are moments of sympathy, um, but yeah. they are purely emotional. They have nothing to do with his blindness. Right. They have right. to do with his family mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And so I do like that. First off, I don't think the blindness was ever used purely as a device, except, of course, for just in general. Uh, sure. But right. it, it seems organic to the character, and it also does not... The blindness itself does not excuse the character's behavior. Sure, right. Um, and even, this is something to get more into the story, um, I like that the character has moments of tremendous sympathy, mm. but that also does not excuse his behavior. Exactly. Um, I think that's something that... You know, I was uh, with the trailer for The Last Jedi having come out recently. Hmm. Um, a lot of people, it's sort of renewed conversation of like, is Kylo Ren going to be redeemed hmm. uh, in the third film? And my answer is, I hope not. Hmm. First off, we already saw Darth, Darth Vader kind of be redeemed. Yeah. But I honestly, it would be nice if just, I'm, I'm not saying don't make him sympathetic at times. Sure. Right. And we should still root for his redemption. And I'm not somebody who roots for like a character to just stay condemned. Sure. But there are plenty of people in the world that are mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that double down on terrible behavior and right. murderous behavior. And I would actually kind of like it if Kylo Ren just kept committing to the dark side over and over again. Right. Right. Um, and that there was no that the and maybe even to, to, uh, toyed with the idea of going more to the light side, but ge- but gets over it and oh, stays right, with the right, dark. Right, right, right. I think that's uh, that's something that I I like. Um, I like now because it's so often done the other way. Where sure, I'm in. I'm all in favor of a sympathetic villain, but I still I still want them to be a villain. Right, um, right, and. And I do feel like that is what the blind man is in Don't Breathe. Yeah, I totally um, agree. He is humanized, but he is still a human. He is a human monster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and for a bunch of reasons, like <laughs> this would have been this would have been frightening and he would have been frightening already. Right, right. Were it, even without the revelations that come along at the end of the film. Oh, man. And with those revelations come all kinds of thematic uh, yeah. treasures right. that, uh, basically, uh, forced me to talk about it on this show. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, but before we get into, uh, those story revelations and anything like that, um, was there anything else in general that you responded to? It could be a specific scene. I think the, the moment in the car with the dog is, yes, uh, very effective, quite frightening. 
Um, and I think I think I'm, I referenced it. I think earlier, just the uh, when he turns the lights out on them. That yeah. that whole that whole sequence uh, is really nerve wracking. Um, and and I think I'm just I'm always somebody who even if I don't enjoy or love the overall piece, um, I love a good suspense sequence. Yeah. Like you invest me enough in what's going on, and then. Tighten, tighten that wrench all the way, and I, I yeah. really then then I'm really on board, and I'm having a good time, even if I don't walk away lauding the whole thing. So so that that sequence, I feel like the, uh, the what what I really appreciated, especially the second time around, is I was still knowing where the film was going. Mm-hmm. I was still very uncomfortable and tense in those moments, and it's really easy. For suspense to be diffused when you know what's about to happen. Yes. So the fact that I was still feeling very un- uncomfortable and tense, uh, I think they've done their job very, very well. Um, so yeah, I would I would praise that without any qualifier. Which speaks to a command of tone. You know, mm-hmm. um, the film often feels very claustrophobic, and that's something that even if you know what's going to happen, just being there, right? Whether right. it be in the caves and the descent, or on mm-hmm. the Nostromo and mm-hmm. Alien, right. like when you are when you feel closed in, it doesn't matter that you know that oh well, this character is going to get away. It's like yeah, but they're not away right now, and no. neither am I. You know, <laughs> I'm right. I'm very much trapped. Sure. So um, yeah, I think it it uh, it captures that really well. Um, so uh, I did want to to move on and talk about some interesting elements. So it turns out the uh, the blind man uh, has lost his his family, mm, his right, uh, wife right. and daughter. I believe they were hit by a drunk driver or something like that. Yes. Well, I you've bo- seen him more recently than yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So so the if I if I understood it correctly, because this was one thing that I would also kind of ding against the film is I had to, I had to work. To yeah. understand a little bit of the connective tissue between Cindy in the basement and and yeah. her involvement in the death of his daughter and everything, because uh, yeah, so that that element of things was a bit confusing because she, you know, they they lean pretty heavily on the the mythological story at the very beginning that she ran a moat that she ran the daughter over, and then yeah. uh, we discover that she was found innocent of that, and and that led to this whole vengeance cycle mm-hmm. that that. I'm sure we'll get into when we get because that's one of the heart of the themes. Um, but yeah, it's it's that his his daughter was killed um, and run over, and then he he desires sounds weird for me to say this. He desires compensation beyond money, yeah, for the the death of his daughter, um, and and that's that's where it gets that's where it gets really uncomfortable. <laughs> Boy, yeah. Boy. Okay. So yeah, uh, he, he keeps, okay. So spoilers, everyone, I guess so far we've done pretty good. You could listen this far having not seen the film and you haven't really learned anything new. Apparently there's a scene with a dog, um, (laughs) but, uh, and the lights go out at one point for all of them. Uh, from now on, uh, spoilers. So the blind man, it is discovered, uh, is keeping, uh, this teenage, maybe 20 something girl in his yes. basement, um, it is the girl that uh, that was responsible for, uh, not legally apparently though. Right, um, right. She is uh, responsible in some way, shape, or form for the death of his uh, family, and so, um, or sorry, I want to make sure I've got this right because yeah, you're right. It's now that I think about it, I'm a little bit iffy. So his daughter was killed. Right. Yes. 
I think his wife, I think they were already divorced. Yes. Okay. Yes. So it was just his daughter that was killed. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he decides, well, I mean, she took my daughter from me. So, you know, I want another daughter. And at first you get the feeling that like, oh, he is keeping this girl in his basement and maybe convincing himself that like, well, no, she's my daughter now. Like mm-hmm. not literally, mm-hmm. maybe it's that. No, nope. Worse, <laughs> actually worse, far worse that his intention is to, uh, get this girl pregnant, keep her down there until she has the baby. And then he said, he's just going to let her go, which seems not likely doubtful because <laughs> then right. she's going to go to the police. That is how things work. Obviously. Um, but, uh, and then he would just, uh, take and now, Oh, now I have a new daughter or son, whatever. Sure. Um, right, right, right. And, and in just an, just an interesting bit of just an interesting detail. And I'm sorry, everybody look, it's Halloween time. So we're <laughs> going to say some rough stuff. It's, it's a bit horrific. No question. Somehow now, of course, if he were going to impregnate, impregnate her through rape, well, that's horrible. That's absolutely that's horrendous. Right, right. But it's the kind of horror that, uh, that sadly we are used to hearing about. Yeah. Which Maybe is, not the basement thing, but, right. um, but he actually has a different plan that is made horrific precisely because he does not see it as very horrific at all. Right. He has a, ugh, he has a, tur- yeah, sorry, everybody. I'm like, squeamish. he has a turkey baster yeah. filled with, sorry, his own semen. Yeah. And, uh, the plan is to get her pregnant that way. Yeah. And incidentally, he does say, I never forced myself on a girl. Right. And he uses that as a, as, some sick justification. Uh, some justifications like, I would never rape this girl. I will, however, keep her in my basement and use this turkey baster and get her pregnant against her will. Oh I gosh. will do that, but oh. I'm not some kind of monster. Right, you know? right, right. Um, so, I mean, it's very, oh. uh, and by the way, there. Are, I talked earlier about like little touches here and there. I'm not even going to talk about some of the touches having to do with this whole scene, like little details here and there. Right. But right. Uh, it's... It's something that I admire the director for incorporating, even though I kind of hate him for incorporating it. Yeah. Um, and he took a little heat for it, if I remember correctly. I think he did, yes. Yeah. I think people thought that this plot line was a little bit exploitative. Yes. Um, yes. Which I think an argument could be made. Yeah, it was there. one of those It was one of those things that, uh, without diving too deep into it, that I, I understood, even if I didn't yeah. completely land on that side of things. It wasn't something that I would have been terribly argumentative against, because I, I understood. Especially, I had heard echoes of that prior to seeing the film and then seeing the film, I was like, I, yeah, I kind of understand where they're coming from. And you know, what I will say though, is that anybody who said like, well, this trivializes rape, I would Mm -hmm. say, I guess maybe it does, but I think it also calls attention to this idea that we all have a very specific idea of what rape is. Mm -hmm. And there are things that would still definitely qualify as rape, but because it doesn't fit into this very specific definition that some of us would probably say like, well, I mean, it's not as bad, obviously. Uh, Um, And this, I think this calls attention to just in general, but also specifically just the various 
justifications that we, that, right. you know, the things that we tell ourselves to say like, no, 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 this isn't as bad. Right. Um, right. and so I do think that, uh, and I feel like it's only exploitative if you get, and it's tough. I mean, you know more about horror than I do, but you know, in film in general, anything you see on screen that is, that gets a reaction out of you could be seen as sensationalistic. Right. So right. the incorporation of this at all in the midst of a horror film, um, could be seen as sensationalizing. I don't think it is that. Um, no. but I could, yes, I can see people thinking that way. Yeah. And I, I have a, this, this is a conversation we probably don't have time to go into, but just, I, I usually take issue with comments in, in a horror film. I usually won't argue against people, somebody feeling like something was exploitative, right? But words like trivialized or even sensationalized mm-hmm. in a horror film, I usually balk against a little bit because I'm like, you, like as we've already addressed, you're talking about a, a monstrous person right. doing a monstrous thing. Right. I, in my mind, don't understand how that can be considered trivializing something. But, uh, you know, I, I, I can understand people feeling like exploitation by itself is yeah. is an act of desensitization to something. Sure. So that I would that I would understand. Um, but but yeah, I mean, to me, I was like, no, clearly, what he's doing is absolutely monstrous. Yeah. And clearly, we in the film are made to feel like his claims of just of self justification are absurd. Yes. So why? someone would feel like the film was kind of advocating for that perspective. If that was what they meant by trivializing. Yeah. I would, I would argue that, uh, as you said, we can't really get into this conversation, but what I will say is that, uh, last year in my Hitchcock class, when talking about the film rope, I had stumbled upon this idea um, that I wasn't able to get anybody on board with me. Um, <laughs> and I haven't since, by the way, but it's still an idea that I find interesting, which is, um, you know, when you see a movie, and let's say it's a good movie, it's a movie that you're you're interested in and it, okay. and it holds your interest. Um, when you see a movie, that is the reality. That is your reality for two hours. Yeah. And if somebody dies in that movie, uh, let's say it's a sad death. It's a death you don't want to happen. Um, then you think like, Oh my gosh, that's unfortunate. I, you know, and you, you might even feel something. Maybe you'll even cry. Um, but what I was going to say, and, and you might be able to piece together how I arrived at this from the movie rope is this idea is like, Okay, but how much is that? Because for all intents and purposes, a person that you have gotten to know, albeit in a short time, right? But you're invested in as a person. Um, they have died, which is which should hurt you a little bit. How sure. much does it hurt? Does mm. it hurt so much that you won't revisit it? Mm. Like how how often am I willing to watch Quint die? Okay, like. And does it really bother me that much that he's dead? Mm, mm-hmm. Does it bother me so much that I don't want to come back to it? Right. Or am right. I willing to have him die over and over again for my own entertainment? Interesting. Um, yeah. And just this idea that like, because there's this, this idea that like, oh my gosh, I don't want that to happen. Well, you turn off the movie problem solved. Right. It doesn't happen right. if you turn off the movie. Right. And so I could see someone saying that like the incorporation of this at all into a, and the fact that people are watching it and don't leave, right. you know, yeah. that 
it becomes exploitative when people continue to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And when I, uh, when I saw, I did see it in the theater. I believe I saw it opening weekend, maybe even opening day. And I was very happy I did because the crowd was very responsive. They clearly mm-hmm. were very invested. Um, and when that scene comes along and they see that turkey baster, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there was an audible reaction, but it's not that different than the audible reaction from any number of other films with just less genuinely um oh uh, invasive sure less invasive things you know yeah, any yeah. like they reacted to it as though it were any other type of gore and it's like yeah but this contextually this is different but maybe it's not that different yeah for the audience it's mm-hmm. just one more crazy thing right. that's going on and one that's a little gross mm-hmm. um so so I do, I don't agree. I don't think that it's exploitative, but I think it does bring up an interesting question Sure. Um, about how much that by bringing it into a horror movie, it contextualizes it as that. And it trivializes something very real like rape with something not real, like somebody getting ripped apart by zombies. Oh, uh, right, right. You right, know what I mean? Right. So, um, so yeah, and it is, uh, it might be a conversation worth having, uh, sometime in the future when mm-hmm. talking about, horror and violence and exploitation and stuff like that. Sure, so, sure. Um, but so Turkey baster scene. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. See, and that's the response we have. Yeah, you exactly. Know. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, we would not have that response to the accused, you know, like <laughs> right. the pinball scene. We wouldn't be like, Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. uh, if anything, there'd be just a stony silence as we looked inward into our own humanity. Um, <laughs> but, uh, what I will say is that, so this character is able to justify himself by a, this girl took something from me. She took right, my daughter. Right. So now she's going to replace her and B I'm not going to rape her. I, we all know what rape is Yeah, and I'm not doing that. Instead, I'm just going to use this Turkey baster and I will invade her that way. Yeah. I and even, I will get uh, what I wanted, what I get, what I want that way. Sure. And just like he's perpetually coming up with, no, this is fine because blank because it's not this because it's not this or because I am owed this. And when it comes right down to it, that's for the blind man. That is the only moral code he can really adhere to is what are you owed? And is it as bad as it could be? Right. Well, how does one arrive there? Well, I'll tell you how one arrives there. I'll tell you how the blind man arrived there. Um, he starts talking about God Right. Or more specifically, the lack thereof. And there is a moment when he says, there is nothing a man cannot do once he accepts the fact that there is no God. Hmm. And with that statement, a more than one lesson episode sprung to, <laughs> was sprung to life. Right. Um, and then there's a, then another one where he says, God, there is no God. It's a joke. Hmm. You know, so he is. A, he seems to be pretty cynical about the idea of God, the idea right. of, of any kind of divine love or justice. Sure, sure. Um, but beyond that, he also seems to view it as vaguely liberating. Mm-hmm. You know, when you say there is nothing a man cannot do once he accepts the fact that there is no God. Now, you can read that a few different ways. You could read it as a cold, hard reality mm. and you can lament it. I don't think that's how he's, I think he's looking at it like what I'm doing here is perfectly fine. Sure. Want to know why? Because there's no one holding me accountable. Right. Right. The only standard I am that I go by is the standard I'm setting for myself. What are you going to argue with me? Right. 
Right. What are you going to point to to make your argument? I can point to the fact that my daughter was killed and right. that I was blinded in the war. Right. That's what I can point to. What can you point to? Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's not unlike, um, uh, points that we made when we talked about the dark Knight, uh, and talking about the Joker. Um, but this idea that, uh, this idea that a lack of God, um, frees us up from morality. I know plenty of people in doing my research for this episode. I know plenty of people that disagree and they say, absolutely. Morality is possible right, without God. Right. I agree. Mm-hmm. I just think it has no point. Mm. I think that we're all just, I don't know that we're all just like trusting in something. Like if there's, if, if there's no external force saying, this is right and this is wrong. And we're all just kind of fumbling around in the dark for it. And then it's like, no, 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 we all know what's right and wrong. I feel like we're just like walking on paper at that point. That's not a great metaphor, but uh, right, right, you know, right. something that, or let's say thin ice, we're walking on thin sure. ice that could crack at any moment when you realize, because all you need is some crazy blind man to say, well, I think this is okay. And again, right. how are you going to dispute me? Right. Well, it's, it's, it's what I've sometimes referenced, and this is a very uh, overly simplistic rationalization. Mm. But as a reference point for a discussion starter, I've usually uh, compared with nature because okay. we don't consider the predatory nature of most animals to be immoral. Mm. Um, yet, it, we may be grieved when, if a coyote were to catch our pet dog. Yeah. But... Or if a dingo ate our baby. Basically. But that would not be what we would necessarily consider immoral. It would be instinctual. So yeah. then, But once you add self-awareness and rationalization to it, then suddenly we're assigning a sense of morality. Well, what causes self-awareness? Self-awareness can't be the standard bearer for right. morality. There, right. there must be something, you know, because clearly this one person is self-aware and yet is is murdering someone or is doing yeah. some horrific thing. So um, again, I would agree with your thin ice metaphor that that at a certain point you have to say, well, what determines the right and wrong? Right. If it's common perception, well, common perception has changed over time. Yeah. Of uh, exactly who qualifies as people. If you wanted to broaden up the subject, sure. you know, d- time. Um, moves forward in in a way that I think we cannot trust common perception to be the standard bearer for morality. We have to have something beyond us and common agreement. Because I think right. anybody, if you'd you know, they would probably say like, "Well, whatever society arrives at," and it's like, "Okay, well, that's fine." Are you? You're literally saying that might makes right now. Like right. whoever has right. the numbers, they make the rules. Meanwhile, the vast majority of people for a long time said that that gay marriage was wrong, something that would not work for this country. And then a vocal for a while minority said, no, we disagree. It's like, well, okay, well, the culture has said that this is fine. Right. So right. why are you even, why are you even working to fight culture? Right. You know, right. why are you trying to change their minds? They have come to this conclusion and we just sure. need to abide by it. Right. Oh, maybe you think that there's something higher than just what we've all agreed upon, right. something that we should be striving for. But where does that come from? Exactly. So exactly. along these lines, cause we do have to actually, uh, wrap up pretty soon. Sure. Um, 
I did want to bring up our companion film, which Josh and I recorded about uh, a few years ago. The film is now 10 years old. Um, the show's been running long enough that movies that we've done entire episodes about can now become companion films, which is <laughs> very exciting for me. That's nice. Um, and the film is No Country for Old Men, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Oh, I uh, love this movie. It's a marvelous film. I was looking yeah. at memorable quotes from it, and I immediately wanted to watch it. I, yeah. Um, it's one of those kind of things. Um, I didn't get to rewatch it before this, but I have such a strong memory of it. Oh, yeah. I was confident to be able to speak yeah. to it, but I, I kind of wish that. I had used this as an excuse to rewatch it. (laughs) Hey, feel free to afterwards. It's it's marvelous. Um, The episode's about to be released. I've got to rewatch this. Yeah. I mean, what if somebody asks me a question online? (laughs) I got to watch it. Um, It's like, but we've got our son's piano recital or I don't know, some, some stupid rom-com thing. Um, So uh, yeah, no country for old men, certainly not a horror movie, right? People have said it's a modern Western. People Mm -hmm. have said it's a suspense film, which I would agree with. Uh, People say it's just a straight up drama there. It there, it falls into a lot of things, but I don't think anybody would say no, nobody would ever say it is a horror film, right? Right. However, Anton Chigurh played by Javier Bardem is a horror character. No question. He is a monster. Yes, absolutely. Um, a force of evil. Yes. Akin, if you will, to a, to a verbal capable Michael Myers or something yeah. of that, of that nature. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, it's, uh, uh, a character describe says you don't understand you can't make a deal with him even if you gave him the mo- gave him the money he'd still kill you he's a pecu- he's a peculiar man you could even say he has principles principles that transcend money or drugs or anything like that okay well he could be talking about the terminator which is <laughs> right d- sci-fi stuff aside the ter- the first terminator is a full-on horror movie absolutely like, absolutely no question yeah, about yeah, yeah yeah um you know like he can't be bargained with. He can't be reasoned with. He doesn't feel pity or remorse, and he absolutely will not stop until you are dead. Well, that's Anton Chigurh, hundred percent. Yes. So, um, but he does have. You know, he mentioned. He says here he has principles, um, and I think you know you could also look at a code. I would say he has a philosophy, and his philosophy yes. seems to be based. I mean, it's hard to pin down exactly, but it ultimately is like. I don't adhere to anything that anybody says is right or wrong. Yeah. I will do what I want and maybe I'll leave it to chance mm-hmm. where I will flip a coin and that will tell me what I do. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting to me that, uh, that this movie came out a year before the dark Knight, and you have right. Anton Chigurh split into Joker and two face. I know it um, is a fascinating observation and, and, uh, and obviously the book, which the character of Anton Chigurh is very similar to was written yeah. much earlier than that. Yeah. But, but yeah, he is kind of a blend of the, of the two yeah. ideologies, um, at least as expressed in the dark Knight. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's, he's a really marvelous character. Javier Bardem won best supporting actor for it. Um, even though in many ways he could be seen as a one note character, like he, a character like that doesn't, change right um he has no arc that's why he's supporting but uh he also doesn't give you a lot of opportunities to like latch on to him he is a villain he you know i talked earlier about the idea of like oh villains people want villains to be a little bit sympathetic he's not at all not at all at all he is a walking yeah he is a walking philosophy and the philosophy is life doesn't matter mm-hmm. who cares and there is one bit where he is uh talking with woody harrelson's character spoilers and it's it's right before he kills him okay yeah and he's got a gun on him both parties know what's going to happen here yeah. and anton chigurh says if the rule you followed brought you to this of what use was the rule right 
And that, and so ultimately like, okay, so now the, this is you're about to die. Mm-hmm. So it would appear that the one thing he's saying is the most important thing in the world is, is survival. Right. And if you, if, if you're following rules that have brought you to a place where you are not going to survive, they're useless. Who cares? Right. You know, it could be very much a survival of the fittest attitude. You right. Know? As he's if, willing to do anything. Exactly. Uh, as if uh, the only purpose behind principles was utility. Yeah. As if the only reason you hold anything as right, wrong, good, evil was for how it served your purposes. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think anybody would actually say they believe that, but I do think that when you remove an external force that yes, I call God, but if you, if you remove that and we're all just trying to figure it out, then like what, what standard do any of us have? I mean, mm-hmm. survival is just as good a standard as any, as far as I can tell. Sure. Um, self-preservation. Yeah. Of what purpose is self-sacrifice? Um, if, uh, like, we all, we all, I think anybody would believe that giving of yourself for another person, ultimately giving of yourself for another person, is a good thing, is, a, is a, yeah. an admirable thing, is, a, is something that we admire tremendously. Um, but... If you remove, if you remove the idea that there is a standard beyond just what is of use to us, then to Shiger's language, well, yeah. anything that would mean you're no longer existing, of what use was that to you? What yeah. purpose did that serve? A deserter in a war mm-hmm. could go to a guy who has had his legs blown off because he was like first in line. You know, he he was the first at the beginning of the charge. Um, he could say. And then he said, well, why did you do that? And he, you know, he said, well, I'm serving my country. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, if the rule you follow brought you to this legless man of what, what use was, was the rule. Mm-hmm. Now, if you'll excuse, excuse me, I will take my deserters legs and walk away. Right. Um, yeah. Which could know. be a philosophy that could be purported, uh, lest it go unsaid. Neither you or I would agree with that philosophy. Of course not. But that is something that could the logic breaks apart to try to argue with him ex, unless you appeal to something external right. unless you appeal to something beyond yourself which for some people if some people don't like the term god um, they might use some other uh, external force uh, a version of of karma or a version of uh, you know to use biblical language again uh, sowing and reaping or something to that right. end but you still have to appeal to something beyond uh, cultural understanding or human experience. You have to appeal to something else or else the logic breaks down. So you mentioned biblical language. So we've got some, some Bible verses here that we're going to read and because we do have to, to wrap up. Um, and they're, they're rather large uh, uh, passages here. Um, and I think it's very interesting. So Romans 2 verses 12 through 16. All, su- all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then this part's in parentheses, which anytime parentheses show up in the Bible, it's very strange to me. <laughs> uh, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences uh, also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. In parentheses. Um, this will take uh, this 
this will take place on the day when God when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my do, as my gospel declares. Pardon me. So that's pretty big stuff. Mm-hmm. This idea that you know, again, as I was doing research here, I found plenty of blogs talking about like you don't need God to to know what's right. You don't right, need right to believe that. And even the Bible says that. Like, yeah, there are plenty of people that don't believe this, and even they might adhere to it because the law is written on their hearts. Right. Um, it's, it's deep within us, whether we even want it to be or not. Um, so I will say, uh, uh, here's Matthew seven verses 24 through 27. I'll throw that to you. Okay. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. All right. And then lastly, I will read Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. So it's a bit of a stretch here. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep, oh, sorry, a typo there. Uh, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Okay, so to tie all these things together and then to get you on your way, because <laughs> you are going to an escape room, I believe. That, that is true. Yes. Which is very exciting. I've, I've done one of those, and it was tremendous fun. I'm, I'm very nervous about it, but we'll see. Is it a scary escape room? It is a scary oh, escape room. Oh, I didn't room. do that. So, that would so, yes. stress me out. Yes. I I am, I am worried, but I'm sure it will be fun. But so bringing all these things together, the fact is we do believe in right and wrong. Right. And the Bible says that even if we don't believe in God, we have a sense of right and wrong. It's yes. written on our hearts. Um, to which, and, and I know you're wrapping the point up, but to which the Bible even acknowledges the atheistic point that you do not require yeah. a belief in God to to acknowledge it because it has been written on our consciences. Right. So that's something I never even consider arguing with someone about. That's that that the Bible agrees with you. <laughs> yeah, and it's because as I was as I was reading uh, through these, a lot of people said like they were arguing against religious moral supremacy. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading that, I thought like, well. Look, there are plenty, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of Christians that say like, well, we are right and thus we are better and our morals are better. Now, I think we are right, but the Bible gives plenty of opportunities when we 
when it says we should not behave as though we are better than other people, Absolutely. and that's entirely possible that people who don't believe are more moral than we are. Absolutely. And this part, and this section says that as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe not that they're more moral, but they are just as capable of being moral as we are. Absolutely. Where, and so that's why I wanted to bring in this this idea of building your house on the sand or the rock. Right. Because while we do have the law written on our hearts, like we are still sinful people and we may look for, well, where is the origin of this thing that seems to be written on my heart? Where's right, the origin right. for it? And some people might decide like, well, it's just there, mm. you know, who cares? Um, and then other people might say, well, it's just a societal construct. And then, then you start to delve into Anton Chigurh a little bit and you realize right. like, oh, it's a societal construct. So I can just reject it problem right, solved right i mean it might be written on my heart but who cares right like, all i, I have to do is say conscience. no yeah right um and so you know the next step once you realize that it is there the next step is to realize is, is to look into where it came from sure and what you are building this your moral philosophy on it makes a big difference mm -hmm. but what i want to say to those who are who are christian and they've they've done the work to like do the right thing and build their moral identity on the rock as they say um you're still going to do the wrong thing yeah. you're still going to mess up a lot right and this passage from romans is something that i've only recently started really trying to embrace this idea like i look and i say like why do i keep messing up I have like I this is it's written on my heart and I believe that it comes from a place outside of me and I aspire to do the right thing. Yeah. And I keep not. Well, right. there's precedent for that. Sure. You know, as much as people talk about how Paul was just like this school marmy type, <laughs> uh, he acknowledges, he says, I do what I don't want to do. Absolutely. He doesn't say people yeah. do. He said, I do. Right. And so if he's willing to admit it, then we can as well. Like we right. will always make mistakes. And those mistakes are just a function of who we are as people. It doesn't mean we should give in to them. It doesn't mean that we should just dismiss them. But it also doesn't mean that we have to despair. Right. It's like, oh, I thought I was done with this. You're going to have good days and bad days. You'll have good seasons and, ba and bad seasons where you just keep falling prey to the same temptation, whatever it might be. Um, but that doesn't mean that you are that thing anymore. Part of you is. Part of you is, you know, this very base self-centered you know something was taken from me so i'm going to take it back i am right. owed this right right part of you is still that but another part of you is another part of you belong your heart one could say belongs to god and it is constantly being transformed and you know i just want to reread re this i don't know why i said it so far away um what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So right. there is this duality going on, but we acknowledge and are actually committed to God's law. And once we start to get away from that idea you start to dip into don't breathe territory. Sure, exactly. You, you won't yeah. like it, you probably won't. Right. But the point is you could and who's plenty of people will, will argue with you, but what weight will you give them? Yeah. The only, the only things standing between you and don't breathe territory are your conscience and your sanity. Yeah. You remove those things and now, now they're gone. Yeah. Um, apart from this, this other thing. Yeah. 
So, uh, so yeah, it, it is. We are frail, and we are we are inches away from being. I, I think, in a large capacity, we're inches away from being monsters ourselves, unless we are willing to acknowledge the the things we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, so okay. So we, we wrap that up probably faster than we should have because the, these are some pretty big concepts. Yeah, yeah. But I would say, you know, we do del Josh and I delve into it a lot in our Dark Knight episode, so seek that out. I would also say that there is a, uh, there's a book called An Atheist Defends Religion. I do not remember the name of the author, mm. but seek it out. And he talks about, and he, I think he is, obviously, this is, for me, there's a subjective term, so don't come at me. <laughs> I think he's being very honest with himself. Mm. And saying that religion provides this, whereas pure atheism doesn't. It can't. Mm. Um, he still is an atheist. Sure. But sure. he at least acknowledges that there is a big purpose uh, served by religion in general. He doesn't even talk about Christianity specifically. Sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so seek those things out. Um, feel free to comment on the website or email me, Tyler, at Battle. Sorry. Well, you can get me at TylerBattleshipRetention.com, yes. <laughs> but I would suggest for this, TylerMoreThanOneLesson.com. Uh, you can also uh, follow us on Facebook. You can uh, uh, like me on Twitter, at More Lessons. You can follow Reed on Twitter. At Reed Lackey. At Reed Lackey. And then don't forget to check out The Fear of God. You can find that yes. on iTunes. And you can find it at MoreThanOneLesson.com. So, all right. So, we are done. We've got one more week of Halloween times. I'm very excited to record that. I will see you then. Uh, in the meantime... Thank you for listening. Reed, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.